Hey, everyone. I want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian in crypto and provider of prime services. They're also one of my favorite companies in the space. So thank you very much to Copper for making this episode possible. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup edition of On the Margin. This is a special roundup edition because I'm introducing my two new co-hosts for the roundup. One is a new co-host, actually, but one is an OG old co-host. So we have the return of Tyler Neville, uh, for those of you who've been watching On the Margin for a while, and Quinn Thompson. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is Tyler, great. speech, speech, speech. Yeah, speech. Oh, yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, really. <laughs> You I appreciate to, the opportunity. Yeah. I don't know if people are listening to this or watching it, but we uh, vaguely look like twins in in this. Yeah. yeah. Well, just good looking guys. We're a bunch of yeah. face guys on this. I have a personality, show. though. You guys don't. <laughs> That's actually totally fair. Well, Mr. Personality, why don't you uh, why don't you showcase that personality and kick us off with our first topic here, um, which is I'm going to let you break this down because this is something that you and I have been talking about for I think years at this point, but it feels like it's actually starting to heat up, which is kind of the death of this short volatility regime. So why don't you kind of tee us up with this this idea? Yeah, so this is, I mean, been coming to fruition for a long time. It, it kind of came to me <clears throat> when I was at uh, Franklin Templeton like years ago, I traded for this guy, Ed Perks, who's probably the smartest guy in public markets. And he he uh, was a portfolio manager at the Franklin Income Fund. So what they did there is basically take, you know, equities and you sell calls and you generate more yields on these, like this whole portfolio. So they basically take equities, turn them into bond proxies. And it's the same principle of what like Charlie Munger does, where he takes, you know, premiums from insurance and then he goes and buys that you know, with, you know, buys commercial real estate. It's like, that's the short vol trade in general um, is you're kind of like turning everything into a bond. And so that whole thing has worked for 40 years where interest rates have fallen and, you know, globalization has like opened up, you know, new markets, new labor supply and kept the inflation at bay. And so, you know, that allowed this short volatility trade to, to work for basically, you know, 40 years and um, now we're at, I think, what it is, is the end of that. And um, we're seeing things now. We're moving from monetary policy to fiscal policy, right? And the labor supply, global labor supply is kind of shrinking. Like China's losing labor. Um, I think it's like 3 million people per year. It's moving to like 8 million people per year. So the cost of Chinese labor is going up. Um, in, in the U.S., you know, the demographics are rolling over as well. So the what you know, the developed world is kind of losing labor pool, which will be inflationary. So a lot of these like short volatility things that was that happened for 40 years are kind of going away. And there's like two two seminal moments was like um Charlie Munger died and Henry Kissinger died. And it's like Charlie Munger was, you know, he and Warren Buffett are the short volatility guys, right? They they created this whole thing. Um, with the insurance plan. And, and then you have Henry Kissinger who basically opened up China and, you know, led to like four years of globalization. And so well, what I think we're seeing is like stuff like commercial real estate's not working anymore. Right. And that's kind of like the, you know, leverage short volatility trade. And we're seeing that stuff become more volatile. Meanwhile, we're seeing like Bitcoin become less volatile. So it's almost like, there's this evolution in in capital from the traditional financial system to you know this new financial system because like 
what are you going to do? You know, you're seeing things like Jamie Dimon is selling his JP Morgan stock. You, you see Larry Fink is opening up, you know, the Bitcoin frontier. And so these new the things that were previously like very high volatility are becoming less and less while, you know, banks are, are getting more and more volatile. So that's, that's my best, basically my framework. Hopefully I'm not talking too much. No, dude, I, I, I really like that as a framework. And for, for the audience, can you just talk a little bit about what, what it is about inflation that ultimately ends up breaking this trade? Cause get the idea that you have an asset, you turn the return stream and the, the risk profile into something that looks like a bond by sort of selling options on top of it. But what about the regime of rising inflation ultimately sort of breaks that model? And then like, let's start to unpack the complications and if we could, or the implications of that. Yeah, obviously we're in like a giant debt bubble, right? And, um, you know, the one thing that, that bursts a bubble, especially for governments is like, you know, inflation that's out of control. And so as long as like oil kind of stays moderately priced and there's not huge volatility. As long as like volatility on bonds stays low, the game keeps going on. And, you know, one of the things, you know, inflation's picked up a little bit, but like if you look at inflation 10 years out on like break evens, somewhat moderate. So it's, I don't know, the Fed's kind of in a, in a funky place, but I think, you know, everyone's hating on this bull market at new, new highs, but you know, you might have a productivity boom here and inflation's kind of like in the bag mostly, you know, we'll see if that changes. But right now it seems like, you know, pretty Goldilocks to me. I think what, what, what's, yeah, it's interesting. Like uh, the, where everyone goes wrong is like trying to trade these like super long, like 10, 20, 30, 40 year trends on like daily time horizons and then getting really upset when the view obviously takes forever to pan out and, and the positions went the wrong way. But uh, like to illustrate how slow moving these are, if you look back at, at the inflation wave of the 60s to 80s, we went from 3.8% in 1966, peak 2.4%, 6.2, 2.7, 12.3, 4.9, 14.8. And the average time in between each peak, trough, trough, peak was like 30 months, which is two and a half years. So in the current situation, we, we bottomed in May 2020 at like zero, uh, June 2022 top around nine. The 30 months would be like December 2024. And, you know, there's just this, we see it with pricing of the Fed funds curve and, and bond markets. All the, is this like this impetus to jump the gun and try and, try and to, uh, you know, front run these, these just extremely slow moving glacier type events. But I think you kind of see it in the bond market now with like yields just bleeding, right? It's, it's like they bleed, bleed, bleed until, all right, people kind of freak out. Fiscal steps in, fixes it, risk assets rally, kind of same thing. We're seeing that again now. Um, and yeah, like you said, I think what we're probably seeing is real rates under 2% aren't that restrictive when the governments are supporting the economy like four, five, six, seven plus percent uh, fiscal deficit spending. Like it's basically putting in consistent pressure on yields upward and funneling that that money that they're raising into the real economy with building infrastructure and spending on chips. And so it definitely will have an impact at some point. 
uh, and we'll probably start to see it more. But I think the the early stages of it, like you said, are are coming through with Bitcoin and and gold's been really firm. And eventually, equities won't love it like they do now, but it can go on longer than we think. Yeah, this was a. Um, I'd be curious to get your guys' opinions on this chart, but I thought it was pretty interesting. I saw this this morning from uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Chem. Kem Carson, he's yeah. Jam Croissant on Twitter. Yeah. So this is, for those of you who are not following along via video, we're looking at the period of 1967 through 1980 uh, at CPI and S&P. And it looks, a lot, <laughs> it looks a lot like it does today. There's kind of a first wave of um, headline inflation and stocks actually do pretty well. And then there's, there's a bounce back after it looks like that inflation has been tamed. And this was around the time where Similarly, today we have the Mag Seven, which can do no wrong. We'll talk about Nvidia earnings later, but there was the Nifty Fifty back then, right? And then, then you got the second wave of inflation, which was much worse than the first wave of inflation, and that's when equities stopped liking things. It, it didn't lead to some crazy, you know, depression, right? They didn't completely crater, but um, that was kind of the point where people started to get a little bit more bearish on stocks, at least. Um, I don't, I don't know what your guys, uh, I mean, Tyler, it sounds like you're a little bit in the camp that inflation is going to be more persistent. I know in this last, this last uh, CPI number, it, was, it came in a little bit hotter. I mean, what are your overall thoughts here? You know what? I'm kind of in the Mike Howell camp, which is China is in a very sketchy place right now. And, you know, if there's 30% of the engine for global growth and things are unwinding there, you might have like a 1998 uh, Asian financial crisis situation going on where it could be disinflationary because China's kind of like unwinding their real estate bubble and things are getting cheaper there. I think pork prices fell like 40%. And there's a lot of disinflationary things happening there. And that's, you know, billion people, right? So um, I think one of the things that's dumbfounded people is oil hasn't spiked here. And that's like been really, you know, a lot of the, the big oil bulls are just like, what's going on? And I think it has a lot to do with what's not happening here. Um, and that's the problem. So I don't know. I'm kind of in the camp where, you know, yes, we're, we have a fiscal deficit and we're doing deficit spending, but this might be a net benefit for the U.S. I was expecting the, uh, the, in, disinflationary pulse to continue longer than it has. I think if you look at the a lot of the data, it's firmed up uh, a bit sooner than my expectations coming into the year. I think that uh, like that's without any energy price strength, like you said, like on the oil front. And all of last year's like a, a big chunk of last year's disinflation was was China related. I kind of take. I actually think. I, I don't have a strong view on this because I'm not not a China an expert by any stretch. I think like the year, year to date, the stock market's back up. Maybe it's just a bounce, but people are not talking about it like they were like a month or two ago. I kind of think maybe uh, that that disinflation re- uh, reverses and, and firms up, and that's probably what ultimately like sends yields even higher. But like the biggest thing people, in my opinion, maybe mistake in the current environment is just that shift that has gone on and like expecting the credit event to be the bad event or this big elevator down, um, which in 2022 is just 
so confusing because it was not that elevator down as stairs down as inflation rose. And like corporate credit is an interesting area to look at. Just had the hottest mo- month in like seven years in the US yeah. leverage loan market. Like uh, third largest month of repricings, $90 billion. CLO's record new deal issuance month. And spreads and, and yields, cost of funding for corporates is is at two years low. So you we saw this like in the beginning of 2023 where everyone wanted a recession, didn't happen. Um, I think we kind of got it with that with that just tremendous fall off in yields uh, to end the end the year, which is this additional boost. And now corporates are in a great spot. You know, their costs, like balance sheets are cleaned up. Like it, the economy's super hot. Like, I, I just don't think that's priced in enough yet. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian and provider of prime services within digital assets. Today, what I want to talk to you specifically about is Clearloop. Clearloop is a solution from Copper, which to me solves one of the biggest problems for market makers, high frequency traders, hedge funds within digital assets. You know the exquisite pain of what I call the pre-funding problem. So if you want to take advantage of arbitrages that pop up across different exchanges, or you just have a trading strategy, which requires you to be active on multiple different centralized exchanges, you have to pre-fund your account at each one of those exchanges. Now, this is not ideal for a whole bunch of reasons. One, you have to take counterparty risk from those exchanges, which as we saw this last year can have major consequences. Two, it's capital inefficient. You have a whole bunch of assets spread out there. Most of them are not doing anything most of the time. And three, it's just not great from a workflow standpoint, and it creates administrative overhead. So enter Clearloop. Clearloop is the secure MPC custody solution provided by Copper. The way that it works is you deposit your assets into this MPC solution, which is owned and operated by you. Clearloop syncs up with a whole bunch of your favorite exchanges, and then you can trade securely from Clearloop itself while not taking any counterparty exchange risk with any of these exchanges. And it's a super easy and nice UX. Now, Clearloop is trusted by the likes of Flow Traders, Brevin Howard, Nickel, some of the best in the business. But the coup de grace is in the extreme edge case that one of these exchanges were to go bankrupt, they have a very clever trust structure, which segregates your assets and keeps you completely protected. So Click the link at the bottom of this episode, especially if you're a hedge fund and market maker and you want to learn more or better yet, Dimitri, the CEO is actually going to be in person on a panel hosted by yours truly at Digital Asset Summit. So DAS London, that's March 18th to the 20th in London. So you should definitely click the link at the bottom of this episode, give your boy some credit, but also even better, come to DAS London and hear from Dimitri himself. All right. Cheers, everyone. Like, yeah, you got the, the bearishness too. I mean... Stock markets are at all time highs and, you know, CDS on high yield is pretty low and everyone expects like, you know, they see, they see commercial real estate and they're like, oh, regional banks, oh, it's going to be a credit crisis. And like, it could be, but that's not what the the credit markets are saying right now at all. And, you know, volatility on equities is not saying that at all. So I don't know. I'm kind of in, you know, wait till we get like a big spike in that stuff before you know you overreact because things are breaking out to the upside and i don't know this feels very bullish yeah well everyone's gonna hate on nvidia and like you know it's still going like this is the even if it is a bubble like i guess we haven't seen peak how many people do you know that own nvidia 
who was like, oh, I, I Lamborghini. I got Invictus. Like, I don't know that many people. I think people yeah. are under allocated. And it might I definitely, be- I definitely knew more people that were doing that with Tesla. You know, I would like, you know, random, like I would go on vacation with some buddies or something and I would, someone would just kind of casually drop. Yeah, I've got like 100% of my portfolio in Tesla. <laughs> it's like, you should probably sell some of that, brother. <laughs> you should probably not have 100% in Tesla. But I, I agree with you. I don't think it's, we've really seen the same thing with NVIDIA. But there, the thing is, is that there's just this massive AI narrative bubble thing coming. And AI is obviously very real, but maybe this is just my scar tissue from being in crypto for as long as I have. But every time I've seen something like this happen, it's been... Usually, I think when people get this excited about something, it's directionally correct. It's like a vision of where the future is going, but it's all I've it's always been wrong on the timing. Always. Can, can, so, I, play, can I play Contra on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. I'm not against believing that this AI thing might be a bubble, but like people are so used to calling bubbles because you saw, you know, Sam Bankman Freed and the, you know, 2020 happened, all this stuff. And it's been like, oh, immediately you race to say this is a bubble. But then you got guys like Bill Gates saying, you know, this is making software programmers 50% more productive. You got media companies that are firing people and having AI type. You have, you know, NVIDIA has 26 billion in free cash flow at the end of last year. So like, to me, I'm like, maybe it's a productivity boom. Stan Druckenmiller is like, you know, saying it's a productivity boom. Paul Tudor Jones saying it's a productivity boom. And so... So do this math. This is Mark Hart, my boss math. So you have $8.8 trillion in money market funds, right? So basically you cash. And the tax you pay to the issuer of the sovereign is the delta between inflation and productivity. So say like productivity is 3%, inflation is 3%. So if you're sitting in cash, you're basically paying a 6% tax if you're not in like a high yield money market fund, right? So you got to net that out. So if you're just sitting in like cash, you're basically paying a tax to the government. And so all these people are sitting in cash and they're not allocated in, in productivity enhancing assets like NVIDIA or, you know, AI. Yet everyone's calling it a bubble. I, I would expect, you know, it would be the complete opposite if it was really, really, truly a bubble, right? You, you would expect people to be out of cash and in all these stocks. But I think this is more of like a market structure float thing with passive structure now that makes it seem like everyone's getting wealthy. But the truth is, it's like very few people own a high allocation in that. And it's just kind of like BlackRock kind of owns it. Vanguard kind of owns it. And then you get these gamma squeeze things. Okay. So Sorry, I don't think we're, no, no, no. I don't think we're totally disagreeing here, but like, let me hear, or this is what I hear when it's like Bill Gates likes this and Stan Druckenmiller likes this. Those mm. guys talk on very different time horizons. Bill Gates is at heart a technologist and Bill Gates has seen many different phase shifts. People forget he was actually behind on the internet. <laughs> he was kind of a corporate intranet guy and was like pretty behind because he was so far ahead on the software and like uh, computing front. But he kind of missed the internet. Bitcoin. Right, exactly. Um, but he is a technologist. And like technologists, whenever you hear them talk, something it just they tend to talk on really long horizons. And they're like, I don't really care what's happening in the next year or two. That's not how Stan Druckenmiller and Paul Tudor Jones talk. They're like ultra concerned on like a three to nine month sort of time horizon. And 
no offense to any of the more macro-oriented people listening, they tend to not really be super in the weeds on the tech. And like the the experience that I've had, at least with AI, because like people talk about media all the time, like this should be really helpful for media. It's like kind of helpful. It's not actually super helpful. And to give you like something that I heard someone describe on the AI front a while ago, and uh, this was a really great invest, like the best interview when it was machine learning, not AI. It's like, imagine AI is an army of interns. And that's actually a really good framework for how to think about things. So anything that still, okay, it helps people code faster, but we're not at the point yet where even ChatGPT can be like a particularly useful partner, even for like me as a podcast host or definitely any of the content that BlockWorks produces. Where it has cut, it's starting to cut like tiny bits of things out, like on the, like producing a podcast is much easier. We were talking about that before this episode, but it's not like huge needle moving things yet. But I think it will be on like a three to five year time horizon. My point is just that like, I think we're front running those productivity gains. Riddle me this. Okay. Riddle me this. All right. Who is the net beneficiary of a commercial real estate bust? Blockworks? Maybe. Corporates, Mm. right? Mm. Corporates pay pay less rent, right? You you go to the frontiers, you have uh, remote employees, right? That's zero overhead for for commercial real estate. That's a massive productivity boom to your bottom line, right? Like, again, kind of, but the devil, like, is it? I don't actually know because the challenge, right, on the other side of the balance sheet there is that now companies are remote. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if that makes companies more, like, would I trade the amount that we have to pay for an office versus everyone being in person? You could do event. I mean, like, you could do events in person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can save, I the way you're saving money, like, you can, yeah. you can do, you're saving office space. Say you don't have to, you do a WeWork, right? Instead of doing, like, giant, you know, giant leases, multi-year leases, yeah. Like that's that's a net benefit to the corporate, which is probably why, you know, Quinn's saying, you know, he's a corporate credit guy, credit spreads are coming in for just corporates. Yeah. So that's like the, the productivity boom thing is it it benefits certain sectors and you have to be in the right sectors. You you can't just like there's certain things that are just gonna get annihilated too. It's, it's like it, what we've seen with the yeah, like growth and quality has just smoked small cap and and you know, like arc basically over, like it's people, people are w- willing to pay up for, <clears throat> for the higher quality businesses. I think for me, it's just like, I want to he- like not hear the word bubble for like at least a week before <laughs> I can get bearish on it. Because if, if everyone's looking around the corner and saying this is a bubble, they're probably just under allocated and, and waiting yeah. for it to stop going straight up. And you know, it's never what, what's in front of your face that, that hits you. So I think we, I do think, I agree with Mike's sentiment. I think that we, there will be a big correction period here, like particularly when rates get too high, like you, you can't fund 0% growth anymore at some point if, if government crowds things out. But I do think we probably have some, some room to go. I think that's the, yeah. Can I bring this up? This is a a funny thing. So David Zervo said this the, the other week, but he's like, Everyone's saying, you know, watch out, the deficit spending is going to kill us and like we're going to massive inflation. But like the flip side to what happened was, you know, our debt to GDP has gone down. It was at 130% debt to GDP. 
Now it's 120. But if you X out 7 trillion on 7.7 trillion on, on the balance sheet of the Fed, it's even lower than that. It's like 96% debt to GDP. So we've actually grown our way out of the debt with this fiscal spending in some senses. You know what? That's such a good, maybe this is something else I've been thinking about recently is maybe this is kind of the end game and we're sort of living through it, this reset, because that was always the big question mark. It's like, what are we going to do with this debt? The debt is growing faster than the GDP. But if that has started to turn around, like everyone's been sort of what, I think a lot of people have sort of uh, put their finger on something is wrong. Like we're not in a super healthy place, but maybe they've, incorrectly predicted what that's going to lead to because the the temp like you see a lot of this is like there's going to be some great depression or huge crash and maybe that's not what's going to happen and we're just gonna like we always kind of had to inflate our way out of this situation didn't we in a sense um that's what and i think where the tr- where the trouble arises the fact that like most growth you could argue has been government funded and so like at some point there is a crowding out effect but like that's a very slow mo- moving vehicle but it's real growth. It's not like, you know, it's real. It's not like negative, ne- negative growth, right? Like I think in the early pandemic, when you saw like, it was like net real growth, that that's fake. But like, this has been kind of real. Like what you're, you're yeah, like, we, we're in like the best part of this. We're like the government stimmies got, every, got everything up. It's just such a slow moving vehicle. Like we're in this inertia where we're going forward and it's going to, we're not going to have a credit event like unemployment's low and it's like it's going to take some a big effort to really slow it down and and rates clearly aren't going to do that at these levels probably needs to be above five and yeah like you're right i mean we're in this like that's a goldilocks thing right it's like and if commercial real estate does like derail this is where i said i've been saying like bitcoin being long bitcoin is basically the same thing as being short commercial real estate because if commercial real estate does like unravel and cause some sort of credit event, you know, people, they're going to do yield curve control. They're going to save the regional banking system and, and people will just be looking for store value anyway. So like, I, I don't know, in a fiscal you know, driven growth environment, you still have like Bitcoin probably still go up because growth is good and people are making money in a credit event. They cap yields, you know, it still works. So I, I don't know. The only th- thing it does, it doesn't work is if you have massive deflation everywhere. And, and I just don't think that's going to happen with, which is happening. Yeah. Like boomers have some elements. So I don't know. let's, let's talk a little bit about the Bitcoin ETFs. Um, there's some, there's some new flows data that I think is worth highlighting, but I think, uh, you know, something that we were talking about before or just in preparation for this podcast is the ability to, write calls um, on the Bitcoin ETFs or like just options uh, in general around the Bitcoin ETF. So uh, Tyler, could you maybe like break down why is that an important development? Yeah, no one's thinking about this because it, it, this could be enormous. And you know, if you own Bitcoin and you just want to generate a couple extra percent, you know, you could write calls on it. And Basically, the whole premise of like markets, you know, it started out with agriculture and you had futures, right? Because you wanted to grow your agriculture and hedge out some risk. And so as these markets get big and liquid, you're able to do this in a lot bigger size, which brings in bigger pools of capital. And, and so now you have like the Bitcoin ETFs trading you know, millions and millions of shares a day, 
billions of dollars. So if you're a large holder of Bitcoin, eventually you will be able to generate a yield. And that, that will basically form the backbone of like a new lending system. If you have, you know, eight, eight billion dollars of Bitcoin on your balance sheet, you can probably lend it out for a certain yield. And that's a lot of money, right? Like say it's, say it's a 10% yield, you know, just judging from, you know, rates on the, the 10 year four, maybe say it's 10% and you generate another, uh, on 8 billion, you're generating 10% yield, $800 million of yield of free cash flow that gets siphoned back into the system, into the Bitcoin system, right? So, and that's my point where you're going from stuff like commercial real estate that used to, you know, it was that yield that you'd get from renting it out is now going into Bitcoin when these options market opens up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Hey, everyone. We'll be back to the program in just a moment. But before we return, wanted to let you know about DAS London. DAS London is the largest institutionally focused conference in crypto hosted by Blockworks. But I want to give you an update because we are now 10 times oversubscribed for this conference. So the bad news is we have actually got to lower, as much as I love you guys, the listeners, we've got to lower our discount rate to margin 10. That's going to get you 10% off. I would highly recommend that you do that soon because you might have noticed ticket prices have gone up 200 pounds and they're only going up from here. And I actually can't guarantee that we're going to have this discount rate forever. Since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of new great speakers sign up for the conference. We've got Brad Garlinghouse as a keynote. We've got Pascal Gauthier as a keynote. We've got new speakers signed on from Goldman Sachs from Franklin Templeton, uh, from some of the largest family offices and allocators based out of the Europe. So Theta Capital Management, L1 Digital. And actually on day one of the conference, we're going to be having an investor day, which is a Chatham House Rules hosted by some of the largest investors in crypto. Then the other thing that happened is we've got our VIP tickets that just went live. There are only 60, but we've actually had a bunch of them that just sold out even in one day. So if you want to be a VIP at the conference, make sure you get your ticket. And again, use code MARGIN10 uh, to hang out with me and Mark, uh, March 18th to the 20th in sunny London. Cheers. This actually happened a little bit last cycle as well. When Bitcoin started to run, there was an enormous amount of uh, yield to be extracted on like the basis trade. And I actually remember all these conversations about like, why aren't investment banks coming in and closing the spread? And the reason probably was is they couldn't touch it from a regulatory standpoint. But I think there's a huge difference with um, the options markets that's going to exist on these Bitcoin ETFs. And probably you can get larger regulated players doing that. You know, the other thing that this just makes me think about is uh, actually we had uh, there was there was a there was a lot of questions that happened around, uh, you know, 2020, 2021 period about yield and like, where is this yield coming from? And actually, of all people. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried came on a BlockWorks webinar around that standpoint and gave, I think, the best answer for where the yield was coming from, which is everyone thinks that Bitcoin is going to go up. And that is what it is. Um, and then there are these weird dislocations that happen from that, like the price of futures versus the price of spot, and then people can extract yield from doing that. And that was always a little bit of a cottage industry of very savvy um players that were willing to take a little bit of risk in terms of counterparty risk or touch the underlying spot. But now that you have these uh, Bitcoin ETFs, it opens that entire game to a really extremely savvy, much larger market of TradFi folks who know how to do this in a really sophisticated ways. Um, and I think the net effect of this is going to actually be, we talked like vol dampening on 
Bitcoin. And this is something that I think might be like a little bit different <laughs> this cycle where Bitcoin is going to, this was the thing that is, was always going to happen with Bitcoin. It was this, cri- like, this is already an existing trend, right? If you look at the peak to trough gain or the, yeah, peak to trough gains of Bitcoin from the 2011 cycle to 2013, 2017, it's, they get lower every time and the overall volatility goes down. And I think that's going to get accelerated with, with this. So, so one of the things we talk about, you know, at Corriente is the concentric circles of adoption. Right. And so, you know, you had your first early movers who are very, you know, risk forward. And then like the CME futures opened up, then you had your institutional movers. Now you might get, you know, if, if sovereigns, if Saudi Arabia is selling U.S. treasuries now and petrodollar recycling is not happening into U.S. assets, where do you put your money? If China, you know, is selling treasuries, if, if, sovereigns and, and it becomes a multipolar world, you need stores of value where you can generate yield. And so this is like the next concentric circle of adoption is like corporates, they might start doing it. Reddit just came out yesterday, said they have Bitcoin and Ethereum on their balance sheet. So like, I saw that this I could be like, you know, this could be way bigger than we think it is. And like, I think James Safeberg said, Maybe even end of February, you could get like options listed, but by, by September, it's definitely going to be listed. So Tyler, why do you think the, the CME, the futures basis hasn't compressed more with the ETF? Cause like a big, a big reason that I had described was, uh, no way to put on the long leg for a regulated party to that trade, but it's held up above 10% even when the ETFs are out. I'm, I've been a little surprised by that. Yeah. I wish I knew futures better. I know, you know listed options better than that. But But my guess is it might have something to do with margin requirements because to put that on capital efficiently, you you still, you know, you have to lever up um, to get it one-to-one. So I think it might be on the ETF side, but that's been, yeah, like you you guys said, I think I did this podcast with Rom uh, like before the ETF and it was like titled, is it a sell the news? And uh, the biggest thing I said it was a sell was a volatility and particularly downside volatility, which we're seeing. I mean, how like nervous is everyone right now that we've stalled out at 51K and it's like for for a week and a half and oh my God, like the dump's coming, the dump's coming. Meanwhile, like all these momentum indicators are resetting to the moving averages and and the flows are holding up. Grayscale flows look to be cooling off. I think you just have to move out to the to, to the alts. Like that view probably holds just fine when you're when you're in these longer tail alts that do re- rely on more capital inflows. But for the majors, it's it's hard to paint a bare case right now. Um, like as long as the flows, it's just hard to fade. I'm with you on that. There so here's a here's a debate that I would love to get your guys' perspective on. I was looking for this thread, but I couldn't find it in time. Jim Bianco put out a big thread, friend of the podcast, on who like where these flows are ultimately coming from. And he distinguished in between two types of ETFs that exist in the regulated TradFi world of kind of degen, sort of fast money trading type ETFs. And then there are allocator ETFs. And, you know, he's got, and allocator ETFs are mostly in the Vanguard side of things and many, much more flows go to uh, the allocator side. And the point that he was making is a lot of the flows that are coming into these Bitcoin ETFs actually look like more degen, hot money trader type things. And, yeah, I have thoughts on this, but I would love to get your guys' take on that 
opinion and debate? And where do you think these flows are coming from? I think he's, I think he has a point in the near term. Um, everybody I've talked to at, at the different firms has said the banks and the big wealth channels are, are not coming online for like earliest April and likely anywhere from three to 12 months. So I think he's right in the sense that the passive, like obviously Vanguard or these conservative firms aren't going to adopt at day one. Like they're not, no institution can, you know, ape in like crypto DGENs. But so he's right in the sense that there is probably a couple more billion of, of fast money. You know, it's the same reason why the flows really expanded when, you know, the, the arcs and the, the junk companies started to, to rally. Uh, was it last or two weeks ago? And so there's that hot money, but in, in short timeframes. And that can be reflexive on the way down, just like it can on the way up. So you, you do want to be more attentive to it, but over, it just depends your time horizon. Like on a six to 12 month time horizon, that view is just kind of, I, I'd say a decent amount less relevant. Um, but if you're, if you're trying to judge over a week or two when flows cool off and we get a couple down days on the NASDAQ, we saw it this week, right? There was the first negative or uh, the outflow day in like a couple of weeks. Because we had Nasdaq down like a couple percent in consecutive days, so I think he has a point. I just like it's hard to get like super doom and gloom on like it corrupting Bitcoin because of it. Yeah, I had that same thought, and this is just speculation. I saw I saw um, Chow from Alliance tweet this out, but yeah, we had on the twenty first of February uh, the first net outflows day in a little while, and then yesterday on the twenty second. Uh, we resumed inflows. And you know, what's significant about that timeline is that we had NVIDIA earnings. Um, and I think the market was pretty concerned about that. NVIDIA itself actually sold off about 10% ahead of those earnings. There was a pretty funny title from Goldman. <laughs> you know, it's like, NVIDIA is the most, this is the most important stock and earnings call in, in the market. And uh, yeah, definitely there were a lot of eyeballs on it. And it is interesting that you know the flows kind of stopped ahead of that and then resumed after we got um, cloud, basically cloud cover to keep going higher. So I also think there's a, I think, uh, Jim's got a point in the, in the interim, but probably over the long term, I'm not really sure it matters. Like the RIAs are definitely coming for this, but like these numbers, I, I mean, the 14 starting the 14th is when GBTC got approved to be sold by Genesis. And the average went from outflows of GBTC went from like 75, 80 to like one six, one fifty, one sixty. That probably might have a little bit longer. I don't know if they got it fully out over these five or six days, but it's still like, even as this number lands at 40, like 25 to 100 million of like net inflows every day, that is just like for this size of market is just so impactful. And then what happens after the happening? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's the big, uh, the big thing that, you know, I think they would discount it by now. It's, you know, almost March and it's happening in a month or so. I don't think it is though, because the miners are still <clears throat> like, if you look at miners cross with BTC, they're in my opinion, still decently overvalued for based on where volatility is and their profitability post having. I, th I think there's, I don't think it is priced in yet. Yeah. One of the big th questions I have and I is the miners are obviously selling to like upgrade their machines. They're a large portion of the, even with the the Genesis flow selling GBTC, the miners are selling to basically finance because they're you know they're going to need more powerful machines, right? What happens after the halving 
do the miners just stop selling? Like, I, I don't, I don't know that whole process. Like historically, I wonder if uh, you guys had any input on that. They, they'll uh, no, they're gonna. Ha- it's it's either. Well, the thing is, it's either raise equity. They're going to be all. Um, I can you can almost say across the board they're all going to be unprofitable post having and and burning cash. They're they're burning cash right now um, when you factor in everything, machines plus operations. So, but what they've all done, and particularly in these bullish periods for for Bitcoin, is they just issue equity instead of so it puts pressure on their share price. They choose to issue equity. We already saw it in Q four and Q one, GleamSpark and a number of others. They're accumulating the Bitcoin they mined and they issue the equity to cover their costs. They just want to get as big as possible. And kind of the sailor playbook is like, they'll eat dilution to get more, you know, Bitcoin denominated on their balance sheet, basically. So like, that's where there's these windows where sometimes it's can be an interesting trade to go long the coin and, and short the miner because they're, they've never sacrificed their Bitcoin holdings for their share prices almost ever. Like that's very rare. What, one other thing. Uh, to keep in mind there, it sort of makes sense from a mining perspective is the price of their equities going up. So they probably should, like they have a pretty good understanding of what their equity is going to do at this point in the cycle. Like people know that like miners sort of front ran the price of Bitcoin. We saw that last year. So it actually makes sense for them to sell into this market. Like, so there's a, maybe they're preferring Bitcoin and trying to play this game of accumulation, but maybe it's just a you know, corporate finance 101 type thing, which is, you know, feed the dogs when they're yapping, you know? Um, yeah, yes and no. That, yes, you should sell your stock when it's when it's overvalued, which I actually think it is. So yes, you should sell it. But also you don't see oil and gas companies accumulating or gold, like miners accumulating the, the commodity on their balance sheet that it just creates additional leverage. And you even have some of the miners buying calls. Like Bit Farms, they have this synthetic strategy to get longer. It's like, could you imagine if an oil and gas company was levering long oil calls and futures? I mean, like you got to, as a business, you're so operationally levered to this, the commodity, you have to deploy better corporate finance, like diversification and and balance sheet management. Another another reason reason why options will be better for the Bitcoin miners, right? But Yeah. yeah. Here's here's the funny thing is like last cycle, you know, you you saw a lot of these miners use debt, right? And besides, I think Riot, and they were selling like once you got the deleveraging from Sam Bankman-Fried, Three Arrows, and all these people, it created that like it's like a self-reinforcing cycle on the way down because you basically had like you know you had to, the miners were selling Bitcoin to finance the debt, right? And the TradFi system financed, you know, the Bitcoin miners. And and now all the crappy miners have restructured and you know you you have you don't have the debt, I don't think, that you did last cycle. You also don't have the leverage from the the crazy, you know, Sam Bankman Freeds and three errors anymore. It is more institutional. It's real flow, right? So I don't know. Like maybe they stop selling Bitcoin after the having. Like maybe if it if it pops here again. Maybe it's your incentive to hold is even better because your balance sheet looks better. And and then on top of that, if your you know balance sheet is getting asymmetrically better, then you issue debt and you don't do dilution in the equity. It's like it's massively, you know, pro-cyclical. Yeah, it's it's the, it it just goes to how it's just like a, one of the like million reasons why this asset class is so reflexive. On the way up, 
sailors buying, miners are buying, miners aren't selling. Then price goes higher. Miners start buying. If you remember Mara and all these guys, they were buying additional Bitcoin, you know, at the peaks. And then on the way down, it's like everything's a fire sale. You know, people like, and it's just so reflexive in both ways. So you just have to ride with the trend. It's, there are so many structural reasons for this. Like it's an, it's always an interesting question to ask. Like if you ask people, why does crypto operate on these four-year cycles? People will say the halving and the halving is probably, it was a bigger part mechanically than it probably is today. It's still psychologically a big part of it, but there are all of these other reasons as well. Even like once you go past Bitcoin and miners into token land, like the way these companies finance themselves um, and like the deals that they have with VC and the lockups, like that is an, that's an another enormous contribution to why these things operate on the cycles that they do. Like, but even, even the happening is reflexive because in, uh, September, October, the having it, oh, it's, it's, it's a reduction in supply, but it's only like five or 6 billion of supply reduction. Now it's like 10, 10 billion of supply reduction because prices are 50% higher. And so everything about it is so reflexive to the upside. But yeah. And this goes back to the, the credit in the TradFi system. As long as that stays intact exactly. and like these companies can still finance themselves at reasonable rates, it's kind of, it's kind of nuts. It's almost like expediting, you know, this arbitrage. It's generational arbitrage, Mike. <laughs> it really is. And but the difference is, we're seeing the boomers. Like it, all these indicators are so classic. Like Jamie Dimon selling J.P. Morgan stock, uh, Bezos selling Am- Amazon stock. Uh, all this stuff is just like you're seeing the trust in like the legacy system kind of fade a little bit. Like they even kind of know it. Right. And, and the frontiers need to be opened. One of the big things, my favorite quote recently is like a bell girl is like regulation favors the incumbent. A lot of these, a lot of these companies. That was a good talk. That was an awesome talk. That's best one of the year. And like a lot of these companies just had such unbelievable moats and millennials and Gen Zers haven't had the ability to like really like make, you know, create their wealth and what what'll, what I think is happening is this fourth turning from short volatility to long volatility assets, from you know uh, capital to labor. These things are all tied to to generational things, right? Like this, this is a generational movement, and I think w- what's going to happen is you're going to see it started with the lawsuit against the SEC. Now this stuff is going to start like wildfire, and you're seeing it not just in Bitcoin; you're seeing it in other sectors too, like. Nuclear used to be like, people are anti-nuclear, right? This was a whole movement of secular stagnation, right? It's kind of unwinding here. And that's why I'm like, could it be a bubble? Yeah. Could the, could the politicians mess it up? You always have to be concerned about that. You got to watch credit markets. You got to watch vol markets. But like, there's a lot of things that might be like massively bullish and first turning about this. One of my, can I get into this one? This is one of my favorite first turning things. Is who knows Mr. Beast? Do you guys know Mr. Beast? I don't know Mr. I do. I know who he is. I don't know. I've never met him, but yeah, obviously okay. he's huge. He gets a billion views a month. This guy has single-handedly disrupted mainstream media, but nobody knows about him. No boomers know about him. Like he's more powerful than like Tucker Carlson gets. What I don't know, a hundred million views on his best interview. He used to get two to three million views on on Fox or three to five, I think. And Mr. Beast crushes that. 
this guy is a new institution. This is a first turning institution. He started a chocolate company called Feastables, did like $2, $2 million in revenue the first year. I think it was like $20 million the second year. They're going to do like $200, $250 million in revenue the third year, and it's decimating Hershey's. He's making commercials against Hershey's being like, their chocolate tastes like crap. Like, why are you buying this boomer stuff? And it's not a knock against boomers. Like, it's just, it's more just like, it's a generational change. It's why, like, we're watching, you know, Mitch McConnell and, and Joe Biden, like, dying, like, J Dianne Feinstein dying. And, like, our, our generations are saying, God, we need to, like, do something new. And we're st starting to get the, the chutzpah to, to kind of do it. So I think this is, like, massively bullish uh, and first turning, like, if you're in the right spots. Sorry. Every time you said Mr. Beast, I thought you were going to I just thought of Mr. Bean. And then yeah. it was yeah, he's the opposite. First turning institution, Mr. Yeah. Bean. Mr. Where, where, the, where the turning playbook is, uh, do you find when they rewrite history with the new AI uh, protocols? I was oh like God. looking for that. In the <laughs> yeah, that one was like, I mean, talk about, see, I don't know what to make of big tech here. I don't know about you guys, but like that Google thing yesterday was really, uh, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of underlying things, but I think like, you know, not to get too political, but like 40 years of like super liberalism is, is kind of coming to an end. And, you know, this is being somewhat apolitical. You can kind of see the, you saw the blow off top over the past couple of years in it. And now, you know, the cool thing in colleges is now to be a little bit more right leaning. And it's the counterculture. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of fascinating to me. Big tech for me slots into something that they feel like an incumbent at this point, right? I mean, there, there are very few of them. In many cases, they're monopolies. Like there's antitrust coming after them. I don't know how successful they'll ultimately end up being there, but like Google search is obviously a monopoly. Uh, the app store and Google, there's a duopoly there. And I don't really know how that ultimately ends up playing out, but I would slot them pretty securely in the incumbent who is at risk of being disrupted in some way. I don't know how that ends up happening, but they're not what they used to be on like the up and coming cool challenger side of things. Like they feel closer to frankly, like the government and the banks than anything that's new and upstart. <laughs> Jack Ballers roasting Jamie Dimon is such a, a great like, what do I think of Jeff Efri Epstein's banker? <laughs> like, it's just all these power structures getting taken to the cleaners. You know, it's a great example of that is community notes on Twitter. So this was, I don't know if you guys saw this, but the ECB put something out about Bitcoin. And the only other time that at least I've seen them write publicly about Bitcoin was like right at the bottom. I mean, they might they must have bottom ticked it by like two weeks or something like that, calling Bitcoin dead. And, you know, it's just funny. And the uh, like, it's the type of stuff that Liz Warren says. It's only you know the emperor has the emperor with no clothes has new clothes, which is actually kind of a banger title. Like you got to give it to him on that. Um, but it's a lot of the stuff that like Liz Warren says, where it's only criminals use this, all of this stuff, and you can see it on the community notes. The facts just don't support what they're describing. And it's kind of like, you know, GM doubts, cast doubts on Uber's business model. It's like, obviously you do. You know? um, but I, I think the community notes thing is actually pretty interesting. And yeah, it's just funny that 
It's funny to see the ECB just keep doubling down on this. Um, I think they're pretty wrong. All right, I want to bring us back to uh, crypto here and just get, um, I think actually, Quinn, the last time you came on the show, we talked about uh, the ETH-Bitcoin ratio. And I think there, there's a question about, all right, so Bitcoin is getting all this adoption, right? We've got Larry Fink and the whole BlackRock apparatus behind Bitcoin and ETFs, but obviously a lot of these uh, firms have filed for ETH ETFs as well. And you've got Larry Fink talking about tokenization in the future, right? So the question is, okay, is it just Bitcoin now that Bitcoin is going to ascend and all these sovereigns are going to buy Bitcoin and corporates are going to put it on their balance sheet? Or is it ultimately going to end up being a basket of cryptos? And it's not Bitcoin is the only type of new alternative money it's this sort of basket of different commodity monies and maybe as a as a data point there uh, reddit uh, announced that they were holding some crypto on their balance sheet and it wasn't just bitcoin it was bitcoin and eth so i'm i'm leading a little bit with my perspective here but <laughs> but i i would be in the camp that i think it's going to be multiple different cryptos i don't know which ones those are going to be but uh you know this is around the time where because bitcoin tends to move first in a in a new bull market, everyone gets all bulled up on. I knew it. It's only Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is the only for for X Y Z reason. Like last cycle, it was a uh, Bitcoin's the only thing that benefits from the money printer. It was not the only thing that benefited from the money printer. And now there's the ETF narrative. But I think we actually saw a bottom in ETH BTC literally the day before the ETFs um, the ETFs went live, and it's been sort of up only. And the question is: Is this going to continue? Um, what are your guys' general thoughts on some of the other cryptos and whether or not they benefit from the Bitcoin ETFs? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, not to keep talking about like oil and gas stuff, but I used to do a lot of financing for commodity companies and, and go down to Texas and stuff. But it's, it's similar to that industry where first the commodity moves, the price of oil moves, then the producers you know, are the, are the first, first behind it. And then you get the, the drillers and the offshore guys who are, are the most operationally levered to, to the asset. And I think that's what we're seeing now with, with the rest of the crypto and, um, with ETH BTC. Like there's a, it's bumpy, but it's a pretty directionally, uh, correct correlation between stablecoin growth and, and, uh, the ETH BTC ratio and, and broader alts. Uh, I think, Mike, we've discussed this a lot where Solana really threw people off. It was like, Solana, if you look back the last four months, Solana and Bitcoin moved in tandem uh, to lead every move. And this there's, I think there's going to be a little changing of the guard here in terms of what's leading the market. And it might not be, you know, we're already seeing it's not Solana. Uh, but uh, like for this period here, we're kind of passing the baton where, okay, the bull market is, is pretty solidified in terms of momentum, flows, you know, assets coming into the space. And now your people are going to be looking beyond beyond just Bitcoin and, and looking to these other narratives. I actually think I don't know what the market's pricing in for the ETH ETF. It's I would guess it's like a forty to fifty. I don't think the market's thinking like eighty percent. Like I don't think the market's like it was for Bitcoin, which is would be incorrect. But I don't think the market's also like oh my god, this is going to happen for sure. So I, I actually don't think it's going to happen in May. Um, but I do think there's still a trade to be had uh, on the ETH side. If you if you go back to when uh, the the SEC started meeting with the Bitcoin issuers and reviewing the docs, it was kind of like 50 days before uh, the January deadline, and then 
the docs kind of came 20 to 30 days, which would, for the ETH, ETF would put us at about April 1st and then kind of mid to end of April where, where those meetings would take place. So you, uh, and before that, you have the upgrade, ETH Denver, all, all these kind of catalysts coming for, for the ETH side. And I, I think people are just going to realize like where crypto, I think natives over index is everyone in crypto is over allocated to alts probably. And you can see that by the ratio of alts to BTC is like down only pretty much. Um, and so when you get a little volatility or, or stagnation in the price of the majors, you know, you get a little anxiety on the edges on the more levered assets. And, but I, I just have a hard time painting a super bearish case for the majors. I, I think you get some vol on the alts, but I don't think we've seen a true alt season yet. And, and that should come over the next couple months here as, uh, you know, people start looking out the risk curve in, in crypto. Yeah. One. Uh, we actually saw, you know, we talked, um, Quinn recently about Coinbase earnings, but there's a pretty interesting chart of their quarterly retail trading volume. And yeah, this was a notable, uh, notable divergence from the trend of basically the slow bleed, which happens during these bear markets. We're obviously not anywhere close to like fully coming back yet, but I think there are a couple interesting takeaways here, which is like, we're probably pre retail coming back to the market, but we're not wildly far away i think from retail coming back to the market anymore uh, there's no hit, there's no guarantee that this would play out exactly the same way as it did last time or as it has in the past but you know you would expect there's kind of this um everything that you're describing sort of fits this like mental model of uh, like slow grind up until all-time highs you know then you get this like slew of mainstream media coverage you know everyone and their mother starts asking you about this and everyone kind of buys either majors or like a lot of time people skip majors and go directly into alts. So a question you could ask yourself is like, if you zoom out this chart and you see this happen like four times, like what's going to make that number reverse meaningfully? You know what I mean? Like instead of following, like kind of just playing devil's advocate, like what it's like, okay, we know that there's like hundreds of millions flowing into Bitcoin ETFs every day. BlackRock's not stopping at Bitcoin, not stopping at ETH. They're already talking about tokenization. And Van X, you know, publishing $3,000 price targets on Solana. Like the institutions are like adopting everything hand over fist. Why is retail going to go from like, yes, there's going to be like up and down weeks, but why is adoption going to like plunge from these levels? Yeah, I think that's, but just to defend highly your perspective on bubbles and the sort of knee jerk reaction that people have, it's like, I almost feel like the burden of proof. Every time crypto goes through one of these cycles, there's this like, well, why isn't it a bubble? It's like, well, how many things do you know that have gone through like five successive bubbles? Like at what point is it inappropriate to call these things a bubble? And the burden of proof shifts into, all right, there's a pretty empirical pattern here that we can observe. There's a lot of fundamental data that supports that mm-hmm. supports this this framework. Like I think the burden of proof has shifted to the other side. Um, so, yeah. But I think, guys, we got we to gotta start to wind down here. But uh, fellas, this was a lot of fun. I'd call this a... <laughs> You know who Quinn looks like? I just this just hit me. Henry Henry Cavill, Superman. Wow, damn, Quinn. Wow, yeah. You try, you're trying to be too Let's nice in the first episode. <laughs> I just throw that one in there at the end. Yeah, listen the whole time. That's like a first episode compliment, and then in like ten episodes in, it's gonna be like you kind of remind me of Peter Pettigrew from Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to go hit the weights after yeah. this too. Uh, so when we meet in person, Tyler, that you still think the same. Gonna need a lot of hours spent in the gym. 
And maybe it's Mr. Bean. You kind of look like Mr. Bean. We can do, we can make this little recurring segment where we just big each other up, right? All right, I'm coming next yeah. week with Tyler's yeah. Like the Light. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Lizzo. Clooney. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. All right, fellas. A lot of fun. Same time next right. week. Take care.